Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that believes our strategy has been vindicated by these catastrophic defeats. My name is Corey Hazelhurst and my partner of propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. In the early hours of this morning, history was made. Labour made two huge by-election wins in town with a mid-Bedfordshire. What is there to say about them, apart from the fact that it's really very funny? talking calamitous catastrophic or existential well if you if you listen to the tories own spin and pr it wasn't too bad apparently uh, the voters do not like keir starmer and that's borne out in the results that we've seen over the past few days with both the midbeds and tamworth by elections this is of course pure fantasy and utterly delusional thinking from their part on their part because they've managed to lose uh a kind of like a, a swing t- what's was Tamworth technically a swing seat before this? I can't even remember how it, no, how it fired. Yeah. Tamworth was their 57th safest seat. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they've lost Tamworth and they've lost Mid-Bedfordshire, which was as safe as it kind of gets for them overall. Any, any way you look at this from a realistic perspective, this was an utter disaster for them. Um, everything that kind of could have gone wrong on this night has gone wrong. There was no... There shouldn't really have been anything to 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 grip onto, so that, that that they have, so that they could claim, oh no, actually it wasn't as bad as we were we were thinking, or or anything like that, because they lost quite handily in both and in in Mid Bedfordshire in particular, they lost votes in all any number of directions, um, both to the left, to the centre, to the right, and it just leads them into a a, a massive hole that they need to try and find uh, find a way out of but based on the response so far all they're going to do is keep on digging down mm. yeah well, so both these seats were held in 2019 with majorities of over 20,000 if the tories had won both of these seats by about 1500 votes it still would have been a pretty bad night for them yeah yeah having lost them both by four figure majorities on swings of over 20% i mean the swing in tamworth is 23.9% which is huge. That's off the Richter scale huge. Yeah, it is a, a, a massive, massive swing. And it it kind of just shows the... the, 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 the I feel like this is the first time in, in quite a while we've actually seen like a, real, a couple of real world examples of just how bad the conservative situation actually is. Because as you say, these were huge majorities that they'd had previously in 2019 now turning into you know a couple of thousand majorities for the Labour Party like the fact that it's four figures as you say is significant these should have been seats that were that Labour just about squeaked by on if we were winning but well it's partly because, I mean this happened in Selby a few weeks ago but instead everyone decided to fixate on Uxbridge, even though Uxbridge is a bit of an outlier in terms of London seats, mm-hmm. adding all the fact that a 20% swing and a majority of over 20,000 was overturned there. Like the Tory majority in mid-Bedfordshire was 24,664 leading into this, which means it's the biggest majority in a by-election that's been overturned since the Second World War. Let's try and do some vague spinning for the Conservatives before we sort of talk about the fact 
that it probably is a bit of an existential problem. So by-elections happen, governing parties do badly at by-elections, mid-term blues are a thing. Um, of course, it's not mid-term because there's got to be a general election in about 18 months. So however you put it, this isn't the middle of a, of a five-year government. Um, yeah, absolutely. You've also got to take into a, like from their perspective as well, it's low turnout. Like, you know, your voters aren't necessarily going to turn out. The weather was bad. All of these different things all factor into these sorts of things. And if you're on the back foot where, as you say, midterm blues, regardless of how you want to put it, um, I'll define it is what happens at by-elections, you know, suddenly you can kind of say, no, no, this is just what kind of happens here. But as you say, it's not, it's not. <laughs> Absolutely. So by-elections, low turnout. And of course, therefore, turnout tends to be by those older voters, tends to be by more those economically secure homeowner voters. Of both groups tend to vote conservative though. So oh, we're getting ahead of ourselves about talking how the Tory electoral coalition is screwed. So, um, other local factors. So um, Chris Pincher, uh, there were some unfortunate circumstances uh, and unfortunate actions he made that led to his resignation, which I don't think probably helped. The Dean Doris, of course, said she was going to stand down to get a peerage and then didn't get a peerage, but then didn't stand down anyway. And by the sounds of it, really wasn't the most active of constituency MPs. Uh, there's a, a new Shaquille and New Statesman article. She goes to Mid-Bedfordshire a few months ago. And the anger at Nadine Doris is palpable. The fact that there is a lack of presence there in the constituency, the lack that there's a, a the lack of any constituency surgeries. Uh, I think the the place where she did her last surgeries was um, a dance hall, which is now closed down. I don't think it's used for anything. Uh, it's a good job that Nadine Doris isn't doing anything else, like say appearing on national television constantly. Hmm. As far as I can tell, both um, conservative campaigns, I think, tried to lean on very much local issues to distract from national picture stuff. Uh, so there's pictures on polling day of the mid-beds Tories out with big placards saying, save the green belt. Um, which I suppose is about, although hilariously, uh, there's a Adam Smith Institute report out. I think Robert Buckland's one of the Tory ex-cabinet is backing it, which is literally advocating we should build on the green belt. So... That leads us into problems they've got trying to keep their party together in the future. Obviously, the, the Andrew Cooper was the Tory candidate in Tamworth. He was trying to lead on protecting green spaces, which are being sold off in Tamworth, apparently. Except, of course, Andrew Cooper is a local councillor in Tamworth, and you'll never guess which committee he sits on. Oh, is it the committee that's selling off all of this land and giving it its approval to do so? Yeah, it's the planning committee. There's a shock. I'll answer the question I posed at the start of the episode. This is an existential problem for the Conservatives. The reason it's an existential problem is because their voting coalition for the past 10 or 15 years has been based on others who tend to be older, others who tend to be property owners, economically secure as well. And you see that even in, in, in the red wall seats that they've won back, it tends to be those who are economically secure and own their house. And therefore, it's quite bad if you as a governing party do something to, say, make mortgage rates massively increase. And so so Tamworth, you mentioned as being a bellwether seat, and it sort of is seen as that historically, but it, it isn't really. As I say, it's a 57th safest Tory seat. The Tories, Labour doesn't need to win Tamworth. 
to win a general election. It was a bellwether seat, but has been trending conservative for a while, like a lot of areas of the West Midlands. Um, not because of age. In terms of demographics, it's slightly more white population than a lot of the country, but it's also it's got more homeowners in it. And that, I think, is significant. Um, Mid-Bedfordshire as well, something like 39% of the population is homeowners. It's a massive proportion. And, and so I think what you're seeing in both of these seats is the fact that I mean we have we've talked about this for a good while on the podcast is Liz Truss and her mini budget has completely destroyed the Tory reputation for economic competence and that is an event which has stuck in voters minds and it isn't going to go away for I don't know, 10 20 years yeah I mean fun, 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 fundamentally uh you know give give credit where credit is due to, to Jeremy Hunter Jeremy Hunter's managed to steady the ship in terms of like how markets are reacting to things and all of that sort of stuff but like until the tories are actually able to uh put forward an actual offer that people believe is feasible that will people believe will actually improve their the economy improve the economy improve economic conditions and therefore you know have an effect on people's everyday lives you know the, the electorate aren't going to be paying much attention to them on, on on economic issues because, as you say, any trust that they had has vanished and they've done nothing to try and build it back up, partially because they, they can't. They either aren't prepared to pay, uh, you know, spend the money that would be required to do the things that needs to happen, or they are not able to because they know they can't bring their own party with them because as you as you say it's such a, a massive mix of some people who are still weirdly johnsonites uh, a load of like hard right individuals who are still right now would like trust to come back and have another go because she soft relaunched herself at tory conference um trying to and has basically said that she wants to be leader again and wants to be prime minister again which is just absolutely insane as far as i can tell and just 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 demonstrates just the lack of self-awareness that trust has um but you've got that that situation which means they can't do anything or don't want to do anything and therefore why should anyone listen to them why should anyone care I think it's more existential than that. It doesn't matter what Jeremy Hunt says in the autumn statement, which I, I guess we'll talk about in the podcast when it comes. Like it's more the mini budget was what the two thousand eight crash was to New Labour, what Black Wednesday ninety three was to Tories, what the winter of discontent was to the Labour government of James Callaghan. It was the cracking of a reputation for competence in government, and the it, it's again. Mark Pack and hello, Mark, by the way, I think has talked about this, you know, voters don't necessarily pay a lot of attention to politics, but when they, when things stick in their head, it is remembered for a long time. And that mini budget is going to be something that is literally causing pain to families all around the country, to households all around the country. That is going to be there for years Mm -hmm. as a symbol of the fact that Tories can't run the country. Yeah, and I think, and I think, in some ways, it's actually worse than like um, you know the two thousand eight kind of like financial crisis and things like that because that, like quite rightly, you could point out um, that 
there was a, a global thing happening in, in, in regards to that. And, you know, it didn't necessarily matter in terms of like saving votes for Labour or saving seats particularly. But what you had was a backdrop of people aware vaguely that, that uh, at the very least that other things were going on. Um, the Tories don't really have that. The The mini budget was such a British centric thing that there there's no backdrop they could actually make the case for which just kind of makes it even worse and i suspect actually will make it even harder for them to kind of ditch that stain but i suppose there is the global context of inflation is a global phenomenon the war in ukraine isn't helping they're trying that you've sort of mentioned yourself in the podcast that jeremy hunt could say i came in and stabilized this mess the problem is obviously that would involve him uh having to then lay the blame at Liz Truss, which for party management reasons the Tories can't really do. Mm-hmm. I think the other the other issue they've got is uh, there's a more in common survey that dropped this week that found I think 64% of voters think that Britain's already in a recession. We're not technically in a recession uh, because we haven't had two quarters of negative growth, but the fact that voters feel like we are in a recession, we're, we're sort of back to the Brexit referendum again, where it's, you know, the, the Remain campaign tries to make an economic argument, but people don't want to hear a positive economic argument when they feel squeezed. In the same way, it doesn't matter if growth forecasts are uh, nudged up again. What matters is how people are feeling in their pockets. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you, you effectively have, like, a stagnant economy, um at best over the past over the past few years um cost of living uh going up wages have i believe over the past week now just finally been been it's been announced that they are now increasing at a faster rate than than inflation but that's still playing massive catch up to where it was previously so an awful lot of people still aren't going to be seeing any of that impact in their back pocket um, which fundamentally is what the Tories need to actually be able to to demonstrate. It's just like, was it, I, I can't remember who it was. Was it was it Reagan who basically just asked the question, "Are you better off now than you were four years ago, or, or whatever it was?" That that's like the big the, the like the big quote, and that's fundamentally what the Tories need to be able to have an answer for, and they can't because very few people are better off now than they were four years ago. Apart from uh, Labour by-election wins, which are ma- massively better than they were four years ago. And it's so it's interesting, again, the Anish Shaquillan article I talked about, about Tamworth, talked about this idea of shy Labour voters. And the other phenomenon about Tamworth is it's high leave vote. So it's 66% leave. And uh, what Anish Shaquillan talked about in the article is this idea that the Labour brand, I think, has been taken a bit of a pummeling from a, that particular group of voters for a while. And actually, I think it is testament to how it, it's an interesting one, actually. The, to the Tories are trying to say that Keir Starmer himself isn't particularly popular. Whatever. He's not Tony Blair. Well, no, he's not Tony Blair because he's not a once-in-a-generation political superstar, but he doesn't need to be to win elections. Um, yeah. Just ask John Major. It's actually, I think, testament to the work that Starmer's been doing to detoxify the Labour brand that you have voters who are willing to either A, 
vote for Labour. And there are some voters switching or B, stay at home because actually they're not scared by the prospect of a Labour government. Yeah. Pretty, and that's pretty much that's all you need, um, really. And it's interesting. It, the I mean, the other real massive problem for the Tories is the anti-Tory tactical voting. So the Lib Dems in Tamworth, I think we're down to 1.6% of the vote. Uh, in Mid-Bedfordshire, uh, which almost was a sort of three-way at the end. So the Lib Dems, I think, got about 25 28% of the vote in that by-election. But actually probably helped Labour because they probably peeled off a lot of Tories who didn't want to vote Labour, but it gave the fact that Lib Dems are in that race means that there's an ex, a sort of a, an, an alternative to the Tories they feel comfortable backing, and their Labour comes up through the middle. Similar to what happened in Batley and Spen, in a way, um, in that election where Labour narrowly, narrowly won um, because you had, a, again, a small increase of the Dem vote and some Tories who maybe voted Lib Dem instead. And again, just the fact that you've got that anti... Uh, so in the 2019 election, you had those three Ray marginals happening in, I think, seats like Wimbledon, which isn't going to happen this time, I don't think. And if, you know, if... the And um, the election we haven't talked about yet, but we'll probably talk about in a little bit more detail when we sort of do a bit of a wrap-up of party conference season in Rutherglen, where, again, you're seeing sort of anti-SMP, anti-independence tactical voting happening. If once that starts happening, the Tories in a very, very, very difficult position, and you can already see that anti-Tory tactical vote is a massive, massive problem for them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge, huge thing. And fundamentally... Like we, we've we've spent so much time kind of like talking about like the um, you know, the votes that the Tories lose to Labour, but actually the thing that's probably going to be more the death knell than anything else is the fact that they're losing votes off to the Lib Dems, because the ones that they're losing off to the Lib Dems are those soft Tories. They are the wets. They are the, you know, the 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 more liberal uh, conservatives who have just decided, ah, you know what, screw it. I don't like this current sort of, this current brand of the Conservative Party. Um, they feel like they're being given permission, quote unquote, to go and vote for someone else right now. And they have, and they are. Maybe there's not necessarily huge numbers of them, but it's enough that it will cost them seats. And it's more importantly, it's enough that long term, it has impacts across a, a lot of different areas. So, and this is something we'll talk about more in the later podcast, because this is very much just a, a a very quick reaction. But the Tories are moving culturally rightwards in a number of ways. And you can see that at the conference, embracing lots of conspiracy theories on Labour taxing meat or 50-minute cities and being government-controlled zones or whatever. And if that happens in an assumption that you almost need to move culturally right to win the red wall, but actually that's not really what motivates red wall voters because as we said, it tends to be the economy and economic issues which are more salient for those voters than cultural issues. So you're not, you're not winning any more red wall voters with those kind of attitudes. You're turning off, as you say, your solidly blue wall voters who voted Tory in a lot of Tory Lib Dem marginals because they were didn't want Jeremy Corbyn to become Prime Minister, but that isn't such an issue now. They're actually being more actively turned off the Tories and don't mind Labour. Then 
your what's your electoral coalition then? Well, in, 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 indeed, and there is. Uh, so I, I I did the unthinkable, and I started to read some comments online on Conservative Home, um, and there was a, a comment of a, a Tory Party activist who had been door knocking in Tamworth. I think I think it was they said, um, and they basically were saying, "This is what I found on the doorstep," and they summarised it up quite nicely at the end of their post, where they said, "The issue is not a traditional Conservative policy. The issues are gross incompetence amongst the current parliamentary party, a series of poor." Economic decisions, not least Brexit, the foolishness of giving power to Johnson and simple longevity in power. All of those things are putting off different aspects of their own coalition that they had in 2019. And I, I don't know how you could, from where they are now, how you can kind of like pull all of the strings back together and tie them up on a nice knot so that it all stays stable I, I just don't think it's actually actually possible the best they can manage is almost like damage limitations i feel where they can just kind of go okay we're just gonna we're just gonna cut this section off completely we're just gonna get some scissors cut these strings and then just hope that we can hold on to these other bits and maybe that's what they're trying to do but they're doing it by in a way that alienates further those other areas. It's not that they're not trying to win the other people over. It's that they they seem to be actively trying to alienate them, and it's and that's the thing that just creates more and more headaches for them. Not just short term, but medium to long as well. No, and actually, I think there has been an interesting contrast between, say, the reaction on, on of Conservative Home, like Paul Goodman on Conservative Home, who whose reaction to this was very much, well, I've always thought the chance of a Labour majority was pretty slim, but actually it looks pretty less than slim. More than slim? Yeah, Whatever. like I, I, I found Goodman's like um, reaction to be quite interesting because he, he basically has gone from a situation where he was just like, oh, yeah, I can see like a small Conservative majority to like a, a small um, Labour majority is like the like the swing area. And now he's gone from, oh, I can kind of see like uh, Labour being the largest minority party to like a, a 60 seat majority, I think was the kind of 50 to, 50 to 60 seats, I think he said, which I, I don't know, like it just feels so, so uh, he's moving with evidence, which is a which is a good thing, but it still seems a very, I feel like optimistic reading of the situation for the for the Tories right now as well. It's still more hard-headed than the reaction of a lot of Conservatives. So the official Tory lines to take, I think, were given to um, uh, Kevin Schofield from HuffPost. Um, and essentially the lines to take were um, the fact that governments don't usually win by-elections. Uh, well, often they do if the majority of the defending is 20,000, but we'll park that. Um, the fact that People aren't buying Keir Starmer and uh and the fact that there were very few switches. And then but and then you've also got anonymous people saying to Hugo Guy of the Eye that this vindicates the Tory strategy because it can make some change candidate. You've got Danny Kruger coming out and saying, well, we just need to do more conservative policies and we'll be fine, whatever that means. And there's just this refusal to accept that if if this if Labour had won two seats already held by fifteen hundred, or that these were say, it had won narrowly in two seats it needed to be taking comfortably, 
to win the general election. That'd be one thing. But it's not just the result, it's the swing. And a 20, 24% swing when Labour needs a 10% swing to form a government. 24, Steve, is more than 10. It's quite, in the context of swing, it's quite a lot bigger than 10. Significantly bigger. And it's in areas where you would you wouldn't expect the uh, the swing to be that high which means potentially in the areas where it matters quote unquote your swing seats your battleground seats it could be even higher which means you're in for an absolute rollicking at the at the general election just the, the, to be maybe finish this off by being slightly counterintuitive the only way it would work is if the Tories had a strategy that maybe worked when you looked at the underlying polling data and then when it got to polling data, it'd be fine. So, for instance, like the German Social Democrats, Martin Schultz, I think a year or two ago, they stuck with a strategy of very much focusing on Schultz, very much focusing on a sort of respect agenda. And they did that even when it didn't look like that. Like the polls literally were flat until the final couple of months of the campaign, couple of weeks of the campaign, and the Social Democrats sort of shot up and won that election. However... There is no, there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing in the underlying polling data that suggests that Rishi Sunak is still not, his numbers are terrible. Keir Starmer's numbers are pretty good for an opposition leader. You know, remember in 1979, Callaghan had better ratings than Thatcher. Didn't matter because Tories still pulled off a generation-defining election win. You know, leaders of opposition tend to be less popular than incumbent prime minister or candidates just by virtue of not being prime minister. The, the Tories prefer the um, voters prefer Labour over the Tories on basically every issue other than defence. That Labour voters prefer Labour over the Tories on running the economy, for heaven's sake, which was not the case in 2015. No. So when the Tory strategists look at this and go, "Well, this tells us nothing. The polls don't tell us." Yeah, well, yes, but then the polls have Labour 15, 20 points ahead, non course for majority. So. What are you trying to say here? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like like you're you're right in that. Well, what they might be trying to do is, you know, that that kind of SPD, kind of like German SPD kind of approach of we'll just keep plugging along, we'll plug along, we'll plug along, and then actually when the economy turns around, uh, you know, at some point next year when everything's starting to, you know, get 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 better, that's when we'll hold the election. That's when we can move things up, and everything will be, you know, all, all right, and we'll see a spike come off the back of it. The problem is, again, do that comparison between uh, the SPD in, in, in Germany and um, the uh, the Tories now. Wasn't that German election the one where basically Ang was basically the first one without Angela Merkel? Mm -hmm. So the SPD were not the biggest party at that point. It would be it would it would have still been the CDU. It would. So they yeah. So they were effectively. Uh, like complicated due to coalitions and things like that, but they were quote unquote an opposition par opposition party, which the Conservatives are not. They are in power in government at every single freaking level for the most part in this mm. country, and they are just not able to get anything done. So, what do they think is going to change between now and then, other than just the economy swings back, which? you know it may very well do like it couldn't get much worse other than full-on recession but even then if it fell into full-on recession you'd still actually then be able to have a bigger spike and growth back after the after the fact which tends to be how those things happen but we don't have that 
Is that the plan, Steve? The dead cat economic bounce? It wouldn't shock me. Um, but but yeah, but they don't even they can't even get that. They're just going to have stagnation, a little little bit of growth on this quarter, a little bit of uh, of of, uh, of a decline in the next one, and just up and down, up and down. And the the thing I've started noticing is that we're not just talking. Is that the the news isn't just talking about like the economy as a whole being in like growth or or recession, where it started looking at individual sectors. Like a lot, lot of the analysis and things like that. So it's like there's there were some pieces which were talking about how whilst the economy as a whole may be not technically in recession, there's there's concerns that actually retail is. That says to me that there there's going to be a quite a significant kind of like focus from the media on trying to find those sort of negatives, which actually is one just a, a bad thing for the Tories as as a whole because it's just mean more negative things they need to respond to but also it means you need to have a lot of individualized kind of cases of how do you help manufacturing specifically how do you help retail specifically how do you help the tech sector specifically all of these things which require a joined up approach to policy making which they do not have and are not going to have in, in all likelihood come the next general election no, I, I, and it feels like again. I feel like I spent a lot of time talking about the late seventies, early eighties, but so much of the stuff coming out of the Tory Party at the moment, um, and again, I'm sure we'll talk about this more later. But it does feel a little bit like, um, essentially, that when Tony Benn said that the Labour government wasn't really properly socialist in the late seventies. It, it just feels like that the problem is that we weren't socialist enough. Yeah. Sunak's trying to do what you are suggesting by having those five pleasures, which were meant to be achievable, but he probably isn't going to achieve them either. Yeah. Should we finish there? I think so. I think we've got a good... Uh... Thank you for listening. Third episode of Talking About Rupert Murdoch and Media Moguls is going to be out probably early next week. If you subscribe to us on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash not enough champagne, it'll be there in your virtual feeds already and we will be back talking about uh again taking a um talking about some of the things that have come out of the party conference season which is finally over and rather than talk about each party conference separately we're going to mush them all together in a conference cake themed podcast and talk about all the different aspects that come out that will then lead into the general election, which is almost certainly going to happen in January 2025 because we're not allowed nice things before then. Our theme tune is uh, Pucky Good Times by Dave Depper. James Cram designed our logo. I'm on Twitter at Paperback Writer. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. <laughs>